0: Emotional, intellectual, and linguistic support with Read Alouds. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs, with Patrick Wells on the back end production. This is the show where we work to bridge literacy research into practice, and we are very glad to have you with us for this episode. If this is your first time and you enjoy the show, I would appreciate leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find this content. That will help others find the show. If this isn't your first episode and you've been around a while, we'd appreciate it if you would share this episode with a friend or a colleague that you feel may benefit. I am extremely excited to get this episode out to you all. In this episode, I am interviewing Dr. Molly Ness, Dr. Molly Ness is a former classroom teacher, reading researcher, and teacher educator with 16 years of experience from Fordham University. Her research focuses on reading comprehension, dyslexia, and teachers' instructional decisions. And in 2022, she became the vice president of academic content at Learning Ally and serves on the board of directors for the International Literacy Association. Dr. Ness is also a fellow podcaster and you'll want to check out her podcast, and Book Deserts, which we talk about briefly at the top of the show. And she also co-founded the Coalition for Literacy Equity in 2022. In this episode, we are discussing Dr. Ness's brand new book, which is called Read Alouds for All Learners, a comprehensive plan for every subject, every day, grades pre-K through eight. I would also add that she published another book a few years ago, that I think is fantastic and that I draw frequently from when I work with teachers, and that book is entitled Think Big with Think Aloud. You'll tell very quickly into our conversation that Dr. Molly Ness is very pragmatic and someone who has really done a lot of work around how can we support our readers in ways that are feasible and that will support their literacy outcomes. So uh, sit back, enjoy the conversation, and then stick around for Jake's take on the topic. Dr. Molly Ness, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm really excited to have you on the show. The book we're discussing today is called Read Alouds for All Learners, a comprehensive plan for every subject every day. And it's uh, specifically from grades pre-K all the way up through grade eight. Before we dig into the book, can you provide a brief overview of your background and how you became interested in read alouds?
1: Sure. So I started my career as a classroom teacher out in Oakland, California. thought I was going to go to law school, but recognized that literacy and public education were the social justice issues that were near and dear to my heart. But I needed to know more about them. So I got a doctorate in reading education from the University of Virginia and was really interested in teacher education and teacher preparation. So I spent 16 years as a professor at Fordham University in New York City. And my research there was always around issues of literacy, equity, access, teachers' instructional decisions, and comprehension. My interest in read-alouds really has, it's been a lifelong one as a lifelong reader and as a parent myself. But recently I moved to think more about read-alouds because I've seen so many misconceptions about the role of read-alouds as the spotlight is on the science of reading. I've seen conversations that are so hyper-focused on word identification and phonics and decoding and this misunderstanding that there's no room for read-alouds in the science of reading. And so I wrote this book to ensure that we really do continue to understand not only the benefits of read-alouds, but the need for explicit planning of read-alouds and for their role, particularly in secondary content area classrooms, which they may not always be the norm.
0: You know, I love that perspective. Sometimes I believe that there's a conception around read aloud that it's this, you know, sort of fluffy, very like, you know, pull up your snuggly blanket in after nap time and we're going to read a good story. And certainly there's aesthetic and enjoyable aspects of it. But I really like in the book that you make a case for how it can be instructionally and, and linguistically and really culturally rich for our students and that it does deserve to have a spot carved out into the instructional minutes of the day. I know you also host your own podcast called the End Book Deserts Podcast. Can you tell us a bit about that show and where folks can find you at? Sure. So I, in
1: 2019, came across the gobsmacking, is the really only word I can think of, research around book access, which shows that 32 million American kids lack access to books in their homes, schools, and communities. And this, I've always been in the area of research and literacy, but this was relatively new to me. That kids actually couldn't get access to books was just a foreign concept to me um, as somebody who grew up going to the public library, having classroom libraries, having um, books at home. And seemed to me to be one of the issues that was kind of most solvable. There's a lot out there in education which feels out of our control. We can't control our kids' home environments. We can't control the challenges that they face outside of school walls. But I can do something about book access because books are highly, transportation's not an issue for them. They're portable. They don't have a huge cost associated with them in terms of human capital. There's no expiration date. So I started to dig into this research a little bit more, and more importantly, into the people and programs who were doing work to get books into the hands of what I consider to be overlooked and often under-resourced populations. So not just book access to kids living in high-poverty areas, but book access for kids sort of in overlooked populations. And by that, I mean kids living in the foster care system or kids whose parents are deployed or incarcerated. And I was just amazed to find so many people in programs who are not only working to get books to kids, but really working at grassroots level, as well as all the way to kind of state policy levels to build book access and literacy communities. So the podcast, there probably are about 50 or 60 episodes now, everybody from, you know, a big Dolly Parton imagination library to sort of one teacher who took a dilapidated school bus and drives into her kids living in trailer parks over the summer. So all sorts of creative ideas, innovative work, you can find it at endbookdeserts.com. People always misspell deserts versus desserts. So deserts, I still think of my fourth grade teacher who used the uh, the little trick that desserts has two S's to make it extra yummy, whereas desert only has one S. So nbookdeserts.com. Well,
0: we certainly appreciate the work uh, you're doing in that area. It is shocking and tragic that there's populations that have extremely limited access to books and text. So we appreciate your work in that area. Let's dig into a little bit more of the book. You you provide that the text outlines that the benefits of read-alouds fall into three main categories, uh, and those categories being uh, emotional, intellectual, and linguistic development. Can you uh, provide a broad elaboration of the the key benefits in those areas?
1: Sure. So most people are probably familiar with the kind of academic and linguistic benefits of read-alouds, that read-alouds, as we think about the science of reading and particularly about linguistic comprehension or language comprehension, that read-alouds increase students' background knowledge and content knowledge. They provide exposure to vocabulary. The quote that I love is from a 2019 article which talks about read-alouds as having a plethora of lexical diversity. I love that sort of richness of that phrase. We know that kids who encounter read-alouds on a frequent basis are more likely to consider themselves readers. They are more likely to engage in independent reading. There's some new research that's looking at kids who have challenging behavior. When they have read-alouds that are around characters and empathy, we see less frequent behavioral interruptions or disruptions and one of the things that i was like in my happy geeky reading spot was when i found the research around physiological benefits of listening to read aloud so there's this fascinating study that was conducted at a neonatal intensive care unit with medically fragile babies who were premature they were in incubators and hooked up to all sorts of you know medical machinery and parents were trained to give these preemies Read alouds that were appropriate for the health of the baby. So a very medically fragile baby had whisper reading for a short time versus a baby who was about to be discharged may have had a half an hour of reading at a normal level. And what we found still blows my mind is that the babies, their heart rates levelized or sort of normalized, and their oxygen, their blood oxygen increased in saturation. So we literally are seeing physiological benefits to the read-aloud. And those biomechanical markers not only were noted during the read-aloud, but for a half an hour after the read-aloud. And there's another fabulous study that looks at hospitalized children who were chronically sick. They report that when they listen to a read-aloud, their pain levels decrease and their levels of sort of the trans- neurochemical transmitters that are associated with pleasure, things like dopamine, they increase. So we're starting to actually see the impact of read alouds not only on students as learners and readers themselves, but on students like the holistic portion of themselves as human beings.
0: I really appreciate that notion that it sounds like what you're saying is we can have our cake and eat it too with a read aloud, that we can be able to derive academic benefits, which we'll elaborate on more here in a few minutes, but that we can also get this whole plethora of bits as well with a sort of a, a whole packet. Um, so I, I think that read alouds are something that everyone is at least broadly familiar with the, the, the practice of it and how it works. And uh, we'll provide more instructional ideas about it later in the show. But what do you see as the most common misconceptions around read aloud in current practice?
1: Sure. So a couple of things jump to mind. First of all, and I as a classroom teacher, this was something in my mind as, as well, that a read aloud was sort of a, a benefit or one of those things of, oh, if my kids earn it today or if I have ki- if I have time at the end of the day, I'll do it. I didn't actually see it as a must do, get to do, have to do, should do on a daily basis. Um, So a read aloud is not a reward. It's not something you earn. It's not a perk. It's not something to be taken away when kids are, you know, not having their best day behavioral It is an instructional necessity. So I think that's a big misconception. One of the things that I think we really need to push against also, um, particularly for our upper elementary school and our secondary teachers in our content area classrooms, is that a read aloud is only beneficial if it's sort of the... 15 minutes, start to finish, read a book beginning to end, teacher in a rocking chair. A read-aloud doesn't have to be that. It can be a read-aloud of a paragraph of a newspaper article, or it can be a read-aloud in a PE classroom when a gym teacher is about to start a new unit on a new sport. You go and you find that here's the rules to volleyball. Well, let's do that as a read-aloud. So I want us to push against the idea and this misconception that it has to be that sort of format that we have in our mind. And I also want to push against the idea that a read aloud is like this impromptu thing. And I think of myself as a former classroom teacher, my planning of my read aloud On Sunday, when I was thinking about the upcoming week, I would look through the book I was about to read aloud. I was a middle school teacher, so I was doing a chapter book. And I would think that my planning was figuring out which chapters I would read each day. So I would sort of think, oh, you know, I'll have this much time. I'll get through this many pages. And what we know is that 50 to 70 percent of teachers reported that they don't explicitly plan their read alouds. And again, I was one of those people that would have said the same thing in that survey. But what we do know is that when we don't explicitly plan the read-aloud, we miss instructional opportunities. We actually see that the level of sophistication of discourse and questions that teachers ask when the read-aloud is not explicitly planned, they're lower level questions, we see missed opportunities. And so I want us to think about the read-aloud as a, another portion of our day that we meaningfully prepare and explicitly plan for.
0: It can be intentional and it can have specific outcomes that are planned and structure around it. And as part of that, it can have broader impact in the academic realm of whatever your normal classroom objectives that you're trying to achieve. There's a place where read aloud can be a vehicle to help you achieve that. I want to dig a little bit deeper into specifically the linguistic benefits you highlight the multifaceted impact of read-alouds around like, word recognition skills and language comprehension. Can you explain how a well-planned read-aloud can help achieve those comprehension and academic goals?
1: Sure. So we know that kids are able to understand text that they listen to that there's a significant gap in their understanding of a text that they listen to versus their understanding of a text that they can access on their own. It's usually at about seventh or eighth grade that those two sort of match, a kid reading a text on their own and the words that they're able to decode versus what they're able to receive at an oral level. So first of all, read-alouds give access. So we are able to build kids' background knowledge and access to rich vocabulary words that they may not encounter in the text that they're independently reading. So we're able to provide content, vocabulary, themes, topics, information at a higher level than the texts they're independently encountering on their own. So that's one of the huge benefits. And then what we know is that read-alouds also are really the most meaningful way to build language comprehension. When we think about the Scarborough rope with the language comprehension substrands, when you look at what those sub-skills are, it's vocabulary, it's background knowledge, it's language structures, it's semantics and syntax, and all of those things are achievable through a read-aloud. So again, when I think about where I want my students to be and where they are independently, a read-aloud is that sort of bringing them up to providing access to what they can't get to on their own because of their limited decoding or word recognition skills at younger ages.
0: That's what's really mind-blowing to me is when I look at some of the research around the linguistic density within a text. So the volume of rare words that's being used or the complexity of syntax that's being used of even fairly preschool students, you know, picture book texts have have just an amazing array of rare vocabulary and variety in syntax that is 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 I mean it is really just mind blowing to me can can you just delve a little bit deeper into how the the sheer volume of words and and diversity of language can contribute to that development and maybe just some ideas around you know what types of language can be seen in complex texts that we can use as read aloud
1: Sure. It's a great question. And what it's bringing to mind is the picture book that is a very simple picture book for preschoolers by William Steig. The title is Pizza Pizza. It is literally a picture book with not very many words. It's about a little boy who wants to go play outside, but it's raining and he has to play inside instead. Super, super simple level. One page of the picture book has this sentence that always jumps to mind. Pete's father can't help but notice how miserable Pete is. So that's one sentence. In that one sentence, kids are encountering, so three-year-olds, five-year-olds, four-year-olds, et cetera, they're encountering the word notice and they're encountering the word miserable. Are those kids on a daily basis likely to encounter those words in the everyday conversation they're surrounded by, TV shows? Probably not. And they're simple words that we can say, miserable is another way to say unhappy or sad. So they're not over kids' heads, they're just new ways to label sophisticated ideas. And that picture book, the simplicity of that picture book still gives them access to vocabulary that they would not encounter on their own. So it's that richness of vocabulary that is really so important in words, in texts of all types, And we know that when we read aloud from a a variety of texts, so if we were to choose a theme or a topic and then read a narrative text about it and a nonfiction text about it, that we're going to encounter vocabulary across those different texts that really the more that we encounter that familiar or that, that similar vocabulary across multiple measures, those are the ways that we increase kids' vocabulary. So there's just so much to be said about vocabulary exposure through read-alouds and so much potential across all content areas.
0: I'm thinking back to when I was a classroom teacher and I tried to use a lot of text. I taught fourth grade in science and social studies. And I remember this particularly in my science standards is as a teacher, you're always on the hunt for good texts. And I would find these great texts that were explaining something like the rock cycle or the water cycle that we were working on, but they were very clearly written for a middle school audience and were just really challenging. And I'm reflecting now that I wish I wouldn't have been so bound to the text I was using to having the students you know, read it directly. I mean, certainly there's an aspect of that. We want to scaffold and support our students in actually reading complex and difficult texts. But there were a lot of texts that I just Disregarded when I'm now realizing that I probably could actually brought that in as a read aloud, and and over time I actually probably could have scaffolded them up to that middle school text, but instead I just left it on the cutting room floor and probably used a a less rich text, uh, you know, to try and teach the same content. So I, I appreciate that notion around the language and the complexity of language that can be within a, a text that we could use as a read aloud.
1: You're reminding me of when I was a sixth grade social studies teacher. My students were multilingual learners, not particularly familiar with English. And my social studies textbook was a National Geographic textbook about um, ancient civilizations, was our curriculum at the time. And so they were reading about ancient Greece and ancient Mesopotamia, things that these kids had no everyday life experience with. They had not most likely been to you know, archaeology museums or what have you. So the text was really, really tough, the beautiful text, but really difficult. And had I pulled out a picture book explaining whatever, the pyramids or mummies or whatever, not only am I giving them exposure to background knowledge that will then increase their comprehension of the text, but I'm giving them vocabulary and I'm making it more accessible to them. So I think particularly as kids are in middle school and upper elementary school and getting to those really sophisticated texts, having a read aloud as an entry point that we then use as a foundation for more complex text um, is a great equalizer and a great instructional opportunity.
0: Absolutely. I just, I'll just leave an amen right there because access (laughs) is such an important conversation uh, in our current moment in literacy and, and that's a huge point to bring up. So everyone's familiar with the read-aloud. I'm curious around what does some of the data say around the frequency? How often are read-alouds happening in contemporary classrooms and what grade levels do you see them happening most at?
1: Sure. So we know that the read-aloud declines as kids' age increases. I'm really fond of the scholastic family and kids reports and then school and principal reports, which do lovely surveys every other year showing particularly some of these literacy practices, read-alouds in particular. And what we see is often called the decline at nine, meaning when kids turn eight or nine, somewhere around third or fourth grade, Read-alouds really dip in frequency, not only at home, which of course has huge, huge implications, but at school. And the assumption is, well, you know, they don't like it or kids can read on their own. So why do I need to read either as a teacher or as a parent? But if you push past that, most kids surveyed say that they wish the read-alouds continued. So we know that read-alouds severely decline, not just at upper elementary, but really mostly at middle school as well. And when surveyed kids continue to say they were a favorite part of my day, or I wish my teacher did them more. And we know that there's just so much to be said about when the read-aloud is not included on a daily basis. Um, And again, it's one of those things that doesn't need sort of 15 minutes start to finish if you are a seventh grade history teacher and you're thinking like well i'm supposed to teach about you know the fall of rome or you know the u.s constitution how do i do a read aloud about that it doesn't need to be that start to finish of a text it could be you know you read aloud from a newspaper article here and you read aloud from a speech that a politician made there or you bring in a poem or you bring in a a Musical lyrics of something. So I think there's lots of ways that we can incorporate it, that it doesn't become an add-on, another thing to do on teachers' already overcrowded plates, but really a way to enhance um, the curriculum that we're already providing instruction in.
0: Appreciate that notion of not just piling more onto an already plate that has become a platter, and the platter is overflowing on teachers' loads. Can you just give some more details on what the data indicates on? How teachers are preparing for read alouds, to what degree they are, and then, you know, common barriers for effective implementation of a read aloud.
1: So, my favorite study is a study that shows that uh, 50 to 70% of teachers didn't explicitly plan their read alouds. And I should say that I'm very happy if any listeners want the actual studies themselves and they're behind a paywall. I'm happy to send PDFs. I very much believe that research should be freely disseminated. So happy to make that happen if somebody can't find it. So what we know is that most teachers are not explicitly planning them and that they are the most common thing to be cut from an already overcrowded day for a variety of reasons. For the overcrowding of teachers' plates, the idea that a read aloud is something that kids need to earn, or it's something that we reserve for Fridays or reserve for the party the day before a holiday or what have you. But when we really start to examine the research around the myriad of ways that read alouds benefit kids, we start to really say, okay, this is something I get to include, have to include, must include across all grade levels and all content
0: areas. With that, let's start giving some more brass tacks details for teachers of this is how you can plan an effective read aloud for your classroom. And this is how you know if your read aloud is being effective or not. The first thing I want to talk about is curating text for read alouds. What factors do you suggest teachers consider when they are curating text for a particular read aloud session? Are there criteria or characteristics that are going to make a text especially suitable for read-aloud, regardless of grade level or or content area?
1: Sure. The research around this shows that the vast majority of read-alouds selected by teachers are on average about 25 years old. And I am not in any way saying that there is no time or place or priority for those beloved texts that we all grew up reading. But I really want us to embrace the rich diversity of books that have been coming out in the last five to 10 years and even now. Just the amount of content and the range of topics and formats is just mind-boggling. And so I really want to encourage people to read aloud from some of the things that are recently published. One of my favorite resources for curating books is We Need Diverse Books which is a website that there's no fee associated, is just sort of a great way to choose texts. And then I also encourage teachers to look at the texts that are recommended by whatever professional organization that they are a part of. So if you're a math teacher, the, I'm going to mess up the name of the Math Teacher Association, but the National Council for Teachers of Math, They have lists of read-alouds that are engaging, recent, useful. I want us to be open to new diverse texts that reflect the complexities of kids today and reflect the the worlds in which our children are living in, as well as some of those beloved ones. And then I want teachers to really, before they crack open the book and front of kids to really investigate the book, explore the book for its instructional opportunities and obstacles. And so to do that, I've created a three-step planning process in which the first step, I evaluate the text. So I evaluate it for where my kids might struggle with comprehension and where I might help build their understanding of the text. So I often look at what does the text assume that my reader needs to know to understand this text? Is there a setting that's unfamiliar? Is there a time period that they don't have experience with? And if I identify something that, oh boy, this is a big piece of background knowledge, I better be doing something actively to build or activate kids' background knowledge. So for example, I have a seventh grade daughter at home she was about to start the book, The War That Saved My Life, which is a fabulous book. It takes place in World War One London, which of course she has no familiarity with. She didn't live through it. And a major part of understanding the character's struggles is what World War One London looked like at the time. And so we went to Google Images and I literally just put in the search bar World War One London. And we looked at all of these pictures of you know places that had been bombed out and and so that was a way to build background knowledge that otherwise was going to be a comprehension obstacle. In the second step, I focus on explaining. I explain vocabulary, I identify the vocabulary that is really worth my instructional time teaching versus the words that I can sort of just explain and move on. And then I do a lot of those think alouds which are that sort of Cracking open my head and making the invisible process of comprehension visible through words to my kids. So I use a lot of first-person narrative, I language to model my thinking with the hope and the knowledge that my think-alouds then transfer to kids' ability to understand their texts. And then in the last thing after reading, I look for opportunities to engage my kids outside of the content area of the book and to extend opportunities to them to enhance the meaning of the text. So I enhance literacy through reading, writing, speaking, and listening in ways that support their understanding of the text. I've given a lot there, so I will pause for a second and let you pose additional questions.
0: I love that idea. I'm a math teacher or science teacher, knowing that I have an organization that is saying, hey, here's texts that you can read aloud to meet your content standards or as a way to help. That's that's a really easy way to get going. And if I'm a middle school science teacher, I might not know what science texts are out there, but that can be a great way to start. And I, I also just, when you're talking, thinking about, I know in social studies, if I'm not mistaken, that there's recently been more of an emphasis on first person records of an event or of something in history. And when I think of language, even a hundred years ago, you're reading someone's journal entry or a speech they gave, and I have to slow down and I have to really think and process through it. And so perhaps that's another avenue of bringing in first-person perspectives from whichever social studies event that you're talking to your class is a way to help bring not only perspective, but also that's a great vehicle for you just because of the complexity and, and some of the archaic use of language and that type of thing. And, and with the steps for conducting a read aloud, I like that it's just super crisp and super concise in three steps, evaluate, explain, and engage and extend. And I see this book really as a complement with your previous book, Think Big with Think Alouds. And so I, that's just a shout out for that book of these two books are really very complementary. In that that previous book also shows how to really plan a text really robustly. Obviously, this does as well. But when I've worked with teachers around planning a text, it really can be done very efficiently. If there is an initial investment because you're, you're learning that new school. There's an investment of time. But I, I've seen teachers really quickly get very adept at planning text in a very time efficient manner using your stepped process, which is fantastic. If we can do something efficiently for teachers, then that's a win because there's, there's a lot of things going on there. I know that you're a big advocate for gradual release. You mentioned Think Aloud as being able to let students see inside your mind and how you are making sense of the text as an expert reader in the classroom. How does gradual release work as part of that or being able to help transfer the way that you're looking at a text and helping them look at text?
1: Sure. So one of the most important principles in the science of reading is this teacher modeling, is the explicitness of me as the teacher doing the modeling. And so when we talk about the gradual release of responsibility, it's this theory that most people know more commonly as the I do, we do, you do. And when I learned that framework, not only did it help my classroom instruction, it helped me teach a skill to a learner of anything. So for example, if you have taught a preschooler to tie their shoes, you've done, I do, we do, you do, maybe without knowing you were doing it, but you would say, okay, first watch me, I'm going to take the laces, I'm going to make the bunny ears, now put your hands on my hands and feel how we push one loop through the other. That's the we do. Until eventually you transfer the task or the responsibility to the child so that they can do it on their own, you're there to jump in and redirect or support or, you know, oh, you forgot one thing. It's a learning skill that we use for kids their entire lives. If you've taught a, a sophomore in high school how to drive, you've done the same thing. First, I'm going to check my blind spot, then I'm going to signal like that's a think aloud. And so I think once we understand the power of modeling and that explicitness, we start to become better teachers of skills, not just literacy skills, but skills in whatever content or whatever life skill. And that explicitness, that teacher modeling, the research shows how invaluable it is. And it's what most importantly gets kids to independence. When I think most importantly about think alouds with regard to comprehension, I'm always thinking back to a kid that I tutored when I was a graduate student. I tutored this kid every week. I had lots of data showing me that comprehension was his struggle. He really struggled to make meaning of whatever text. I had, you know, I had norm reference testing to show me this. I had observational data. I knew comprehension was his weakness. And I caught myself one day, we were reading a text, and I caught myself asking him questions that were comprehension checks. Things like, remind me what the boy said or where did the character go? And I kind of had this epiphany moment where I was like, all I'm doing is assessing comprehension. I'm not actually building it. And a think aloud is what you have to do to build it because it's literally the, I'm gonna show you what I'm doing to make sense so that you're more likely to increase your ability to comprehend. And so once I sort of had that profound aha moment, I started to do more of the cracking my head open and using that first person language, that narrative to show kids and students how to be successful. And for most kids, it's really powerful because I am literally showing you what I'm doing through a text so that you understand that reading is thinking, and then you can employ that in your independent reading. So again yeah it took a little bit of time for me to understand the process and now that I know it like my kid at home gets really annoyed because I'll do a think aloud like we're looking at a chinese food menu and I'm doing a think aloud of oh well you know I really should eat some more vegetables today but I'm really wanting the noodles and she's like you're doing a think aloud again and you don't need to but that's how powerful they are there once we learn that first person i narrative we are becoming more powerful teachers.
0: The kids of literacy researchers and and teachers are are good sports for what they, they go are, through.
1: <laughs> they are. We were watching a movie the other day and I paused it because I recognized, I can't even remember what the movie was, but I recognized the movie and it was, you know, a Disney movie or something. It assumed background knowledge that she didn't have. And so I stopped and went into this little mini lesson to give her the background knowledge. And she was like, can you just let me watch the movie? And I felt for her. But I also recognized that this is what we do with kids all the time. We assume that the book is going to inform them. When had I said, oh, we're about to read about, you know." when I'm building their background knowledge, I'm enabling her to be more successful in understanding it, which then leads to more enjoyment
0: of it. Absolutely. Exhibit A, right there. I appreciate that notion where you're contrasting the role of questions in comprehensive instruction and the role of think aloud and gradual ease. And there's a uh, it's actually a YouTube video that you did early on in the pandemic. It was with a group, and there's a little short quote where you kind of summarize what you just said. I've shown that to lots of undergraduates and teachers, and just this notion of, you know, comprehension questions is sort of the tried and true technique when we're doing text, and, and there's certainly a room for it. I'm not advocating for Are- eliminating it, but if all we're doing is just sort of peppering kids with questions. And that's what we're doing with text. That's sort of akin to with the first grader, just sliding words in front of them and asking, well, what do you think this word you know reads as? What do you think this word reads as? And we, w- we wouldn't do that. We would say, here's the sounds that I'm reading when I read this word. Now I want you to mimic that. Now let's build some independence there. And so the questions are great to formatively probe for comprehension and see where students are at, but it's not building comprehension. And we can build comprehension when we offer a think aloud of, hey, here's how I'm making sense of this text, or there's a lot of things going on in this paragraph. I'm going to walk you through what's making the most sense to me. And that's how you're exposing them. You're providing access to the text, but also the thought patterns that they can use to you know, help navigate complex texts on their own. And, and certainly background knowledge is going to play a huge role in that. But you know syntax and the structure of language itself also plays a huge role. And so it doesn't need to be this either or thinking strategically or versus background knowledge or question asking versus think aloud and gradual release that great teachers are really able to use all of those as ingredients to bake their instructional cake to use an analogy from my last podcast episode. So in a lot of teachers if we're carving out instructional time for read-alouds. I think teachers need to feel that they know that the read-aloud that they are doing, that it is making impact, that it is influencing students in the desired way. What would you recommend for a teacher that is working to incorporate read-alouds more in their classroom, and how can they evaluate whether it is meeting their determined objectives within their classroom?
1: That's a really good question. I'm not 100% that I have the answer. I'm at the point in my career where if somebody asks me a question I don't know, I think it's actually more empowering to say, really good question. Let's learn it together. So I'll go on my hunch because I don't think the research community has really figured out, well, how do we know? What's the sort of criteria or what's the checklist or what's the evaluative tool for an effective be but I would notice it in terms of student behavior, their engagement with the text, their ability to do something meaningful with the text. So when we read aloud, our intention is to provide enjoyment, to provide information, to provide access. So I would also think about what is my purpose for this? Am I reading this textbook as an entry point into the chapter that we're about to start on the water cycle, which is very difficult to understand? I would know my read aloud had been effective if they came to terminology that was familiar, if they were better able to retain and understand the content, if they were then going to make independent text choices related to my read aloud. So for example, We know a read-aloud is super engaging when kids come up to us and say, we just finished Frindle. Do you have any other books by Andrew Clements? And that's what read-alouds do. They provide enjoyment and then access to a whole new slew of similar texts or similar topics or similar authors. So I would notice it in students' behavior. And I think that behavior is so many times we sort of want to prioritize quantifiable data but i are a quantitative data but we also have to look at student behavior and those student behaviors in terms of retention of information use of vocabulary transfer of whatever the knowledge that was presented in the text or the skill that i was teaching towards is just as important as those you know quantitative measures
0: i appreciate that notion something that is more concrete and discrete is always going to be easier to measure in a quantifiable degree. And so I'm thinking specifically here of like fluency or phonics, those are very concrete, very measurable with hard numbers. Whereas a read aloud, as you mentioned, it's hard to know what linguistic structures are, are being learned just through a read aloud. But I appreciate that you mentioned this intentionality of when you're going into it, well, what is your target? What are you trying to hit with this read aloud? I know that like Doug Fisher, the last little bit, has been a very prominent on social media talking about learning intentions and success criteria. And uh, I think a read-aloud is a perfect way to help us assist with that. If you're going into instruction knowing, hey, this is what I want to achieve, and then you have an idea in your mind of what that student achievement will look like, then that might not be the a norm-referenced way to, start to concretely measure that outcome. But you can absolutely measure whether it is supporting the learning outcome that you've intended and then all those other benefits that you mentioned of, well, are they getting interested in other texts? Did this lead them to other texts? That's not something that is going to show up necessarily on a school report card, but you share that with any parent at the next parent conference and the parent's going to be, okay, good things are happening.
1: Sure. And I think if we were to ask the same question to a teacher fourth grade teacher or seventh grade teacher whoever they would say i know my read aloud has been successful when it's time to close the book and my students groan mm-hmm. or they say can you read for five more minutes or they say things like i went to the library and checked out the book that we are reading aloud and i'm ahead of you but i'm not going to ruin it like all of those little behavioral things the groans of when read aloud mm-hmm. time is done or the please for more like we can't overlook those
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's give some final considerations ar- around read-alouds. What words of advice would you offer to teachers or administrators that still have reservations about the value of read-alouds? How can you address concerns about like, the investment of instructional minutes towards read-alouds for long-term benefits?
1: So I think we need to really familiarize ourselves with the peer-reviewed research that shows the benefits of read-alouds. I think we are past a time when we just sort of intuitively knew a read-aloud was beneficial. We've now got significant data around it. So I think we need to widely share that and document that this is not just an add-on. This is the essential cornerstone of literacy instruction. And there's data in many forms and many varieties that prove that. I would encourage any teacher to revisit their read-aloud. And for many that's, oh man, you know, I do think of it as an add-on or one of those things I hope we get to by Thursday afternoon, rather than I prioritize it for X amount of minutes every day in my classroom. So I think it's a reconsidering of what your current practices around read-alouds are and how can you shift them forward. Maybe it's a longer extended time. Maybe it's a more frequent read aloud across the instructional week. Maybe it is reshaping your understanding that a read aloud is in a kindergarten classroom. doesn't look like a read aloud in an eighth grade math classroom. And that's okay. Kids are still getting similar benefits. So I think forward motion in any capacity is the way that we start embracing where we are and where we could go. I'm eager to see how people take what I've written and use it to evaluate and maybe re-engage read alouds in their classrooms.
0: This has been a fantastic conversation and there's so much in the book that we we didn't cover at all. There's specific lesson plans and examples. We might even call them a think aloud from Molly Ness that you can okay. use in your classroom to go and implement. So thanks so much for joining us on the show. Last question, When when you look at the current literacy landscape, What's what's filling your cup? I
1: love this question. And I feel like right now, at this particular time in our literacy landscape, my cup runneth over. And by that, I mean, I've been in the literacy world for 20 to 30 years. And at no other time have conversations at the national level been so focused around literacy. Some great conversations, some really difficult conversations, some highly contentious conversations. But what fills my cup is that so many people across so many fields from psychology to public health to social justice are having conversations about literacy. So many people are coming to the table because they understand how important literacy is not only to the individual kids in our classroom, but to our society, our economic prosperity, our citizenship in terms of public health and mental health and all of those things. And so I am thrilled to see so many people coming to the table about literacy as a topic. There's a tiny little cynical part of me that wants to say, like, what's taken the rest of you so long? But rather than that, I'm really going to embrace this moment as a hallelujah so much conversation documentary movies you know podcasts social media major media outlets covering literacy and it's about time and let's keep those conversations going
0: dr molly nest thank you for joining us on the teaching literacy podcast
1: thank you so much for your time and the work that you do
0: A big thanks to Dr. Molly Ness for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. There from my conversation with her that the benefits of read aloud are really like an iceberg where there are all these benefits happening below the water level that are, are hard to see, maybe perhaps concretely, but that we have to trust that they are there and we have to trust that there's a cumulative effect that those are going to pay dividends over time. And in some instructional spheres, it's going to be hard to justify the inclusion of read aloud just based on those below the water benefits. And so I I think if that's a location you're in where perhaps read aloud isn't something that's overtly legitimized within your instructional sphere, then the strategy would be to, well, let's look at the part of the iceberg that is above the water. And I think any instructional minutes that are attending to scaffolding complex texts for students are are valuable. And so framing it within, I'm using my read aloud time to accomplish these specific learning targets that I'm trying to help students with rare vocabulary or I'm doing some instruction around simplex and complex sentences or that we're trying to learn mummy excavation in Egypt in the 1800s. And so I'm doing a read aloud of a firsthand account of an excavation to help my students learn those objectives. If we tie our read-alouds to things that we're already wanting our students to learn, then all of a sudden, very, very easily, you know, read-aloud might have gone from this gray area where there's these benefits beneath the water, but it's hard to justify instructional time to where by focusing just on tying it to other standards that we're learning within our classroom, it very easily becomes legitimized within the classroom. So if that's your instructional context, that's something to think about. And if you're in a space that already really legitimizes the use of read aloud, then I would argue that that's great, continue it. But using what Dr. Ness talked about, that it's time to look at how can you take it to the next level. And she has so many great ideas in this book and in her previous book, Think Big with Think Alouds, of how comprehension instruction can be really rich and how it can be really affirming and how you can support your students in complex text. And that I think is a goal that everyone in the literacy world can agree on. We want to be able to get our students reading and understanding complex and difficult text. That is all I have for you today. I very much appreciate your role in listening to the podcast and sharing the podcast. If you'd like to leave a review or share this with a colleague, we would greatly appreciate it. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's work together to make reading and writing instruction even better.